Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. On the second half of today's episode, we'll read paragraphs 624 through 658, and we'll talk today about the resurrection. I have a longtime friend who one day, right around Easter time, was asking, what exactly is it that you celebrate? Again, remind me, she was not Catholic, is not Catholic. And I said, well, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. She goes, wait, what? You believe that he went from being dead to being alive again? I was like, yes, that's exactly what I believe. She was like, wow, that's bold. I was like, wow, we've been friends for a long time. This is funny. This is coming up now. Um, along those lines, Archbishop Perez, the Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, in one of his opening homilies, um, once he became Archbishop, proclaimed the Catholic belief in the resurrection. And in that homily, he said very beautifully and very boldly, I believe the dead man rose. I believe the dead man rose. I love this about Christianity. It's a bold religion that makes wild claims. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago in discussing C.S. Lewis's trilemma, Christianity often gets watered down. So Jesus Christ is often portrayed as a nice guy, a good moral teacher. Um, Many know that as Christians, we're called to turn the other cheek, but it often is construed as you know, quietly acquiescing to what others say and and do. And no, that's not Christianity. Uh, if I had a dollar for every time I had a student say, "Well, as long as I'm a good person, I'll get into heaven," right? I would own a timeshare in Las Vegas. Uh, when I press the point in response to their questions, what what does it mean to be a good person? The answers usually amounted to, "Well, you know, you smile." Be nice, tolerant, don't ruffle too many feathers. Uh, Occasionally give some of my loose change to the homeless men and women on the streets of Philadelphia. Some of these ideas square with Christianity, but for the most part, they don't. Uh, Look at the lives of the saints, of our our big brothers and sisters who went before us in the Catholic faith. First, St. Louis-Marie de Montfort, famous for his devotion to the Blessed Mother. Uh, There's an anecdote told about, about him Uh, doing a Eucharistic procession in church one day. And this church just happened to be attached or share a wall with a bar next door. And as he was processing the Eucharist around the church in this procession, he was able to see through a little chink in the wall that there were some guys in the bar across the way looking through to the church and basically pointing and laughing, like, what is going on over there? You know, what are these, these people doing? So after time passed, uh, St. Louis-Marie de Montfort could just not take the fact that, that people were basically making fun of the Eucharistic Lord. So the story goes, he very calmly put down the monstrance, which was holding the Eucharist, put the monstrance down on the altar, calmly walked over to the bar, and then punched the primary offender in the face, the, the main guy who was pointing and laughing at the Eucharist calmly walked back to church, and then continued the Eucharistic procession. (laughs) Doesn't really sound like a a Christian who smiled, was nice and tolerant, didn't ruffle too many feathers. Take another example, St. Rita of Cascia. 
She was married to a man who was essentially in this mafioso type of uh, vendetta where, you know, one family would would kill out of revenge another member of the family and then that family would get back at the first family by killing another member of the family. So at one point, St. Rita of Cassia, she and her husband had, had two teenage sons and very sadly her husband was killed in this vendetta. And so the sons vowed, we will avenge our father's death and, you know, kill, kill another member of this rival family. Well, St. Rita of Cassia went on her knees that night and prayed, Lord, before my sons can commit a mortal sin and be eternally separated from you, please take them. And then the story goes, within the next couple of days, they both somewhat mysteriously died okay, of some strange illness. And so the Lord heard and answered St. Rita's prayer, as unmotherly of a prayer as it sounded. Um, she believed that it was much better for them to die early and not be eternally separated from the Lord rather than to commit a mortal sin and spend all of eternity without him. Lastly, I think of St. Damien of Molokai, um, often referred to as the martyr of charity. He was a Belgian priest in the mid-19th century who was a missionary to uh, a colony of Hawaiian lepers for 16 years who lived in this government-mandated quarantine. Over those 16 years, he taught the Catholic faith to them. He cared for these men and women. Additionally, he oversaw the building of houses, schools, hospitals, roads, churches, and um, ministered to them not only medically and emotionally, um, but in terms of, of the Catholic faith as well. About 11 years into those 16 years, uh, he contracted the leprosy and continued to love and serve the people among whom he now lived. These examples are not nice and tolerant actions that don't ruffle feathers, but like Christ, their exemplar, Christ who suffered and died a horrific and painful death to set each and every one of us free. They're bold, they're wild, and they run contrary to the actions of a person whom the world deems quote unquote good, a good person. Um, don't get me wrong, they are good. So DeMontford punching this man in the face who was making fun of the Eucharistic Lord is pretty reminiscent of Christ uh, flipping the tables in the temple of the money changers, those who were abusing this sacred space to make money. St. Rita of Cassia's prayer uh, is reminiscent of Christ's admonition from the Gospel of Matthew to cut off your hand and pluck out your eye if they cause you to sin. And St. Damien of Molokai's way of living uh, with, with this fellow lepers in Hawaii was a lot like Christ dining with tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. So what it means to be good is often different from even opposite of the, what the world deems good. This belief in the resurrection, this belief that the dead man rose, was, was once dead and then alive again, again, it's bold, it's wild, and it's good. It's good because first, it recognizes that Christ truly conquered sin and death. So sin and death seemed to have won and then when Christ resurrects three days later, they very clearly did not win. Sin and death are not the end of the story. One of the most feared moments of our humanity, i.e. death, has been conquered. 
Again, we fight with Jesus and we too conquer. Secondly, it's good because it backs up everything else he said. If you can be dead and then be alive, well, then maybe that bread and wine can really be your body and blood, right? Lord, when you forgive my sins, maybe they're really forgiven. When you say you'll be with us to the end of the age, maybe that will also come true. If you could go, Jesus, from being dead to being alive, then maybe all these other wild claims, these bold things that you said, have also come true and continue to be true. Paragraph 638 of the Catechism says, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this day he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the crowning truth of our faith in Christ, a faith believed and lived as the central truth by the first Christian community, handed on as fundamental by tradition, established by the documents of the New Testament, and preached as an essential part of the Paschal Mystery along with the cross. Christ is risen from the dead. Dying, he conquered death. To the dead, he has given life. This bold and wild belief of our Catholic faith, again, is often watered down or kind of cast aside or explained away in in a simple, nice way. When I used to teach at uh, one of the high schools for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia and taught the resurrection, there was this great outline in the students' textbooks, which listed alternate explanations to the resurrection that have been given over the centuries. And it's so interesting today in you know, the, the 21st century, the arguments you'll hear people say are ones that have been repeated uh, down through the ages. So I think it's worth noting some of these objections and then how to uh, refute them, what to say in response to them. So one of the arguments given against the resurrection is that the, re- the gospel writers fabricated the resurrection story. Uh, first of all, Mary Magdalene is the woman who is given the credit in the gospels for being the first to witness the resurrection or first to find the empty tomb. At the time, a woman's testimony would not have held up in court in either Roman or the Jewish culture. And so... Um, this is not the person you would place as the, the first witness to the resurrection if you wanted uh, credibility in your, your account of the resurrection. Also, there's a number of discrepancies among the gospel accounts. So if the gospel writers got together and, and decided, you know what, let's make up this, this story to, to kind of be the end of, of our story of Christianity, well, they had a lot of discrepancies and were not consistent in their recounting of the resurrection. Uh, Secondly, many people have said through the years, there's nothing unique about Christianity. Uh, It simply copies other religions. For example, other religions talk about these fertility rites where there's this cyclical death and resurrection, death and resurrection, and here we find that in Christianity. In response to that, one could say, uh, rather than mythological figures, I'm thinking of, for example, in Greek mythology, Diana and Persephone. Jesus was a real historical figure with a family, a mom and a dad, Jesus and Mary, who lived a real life in Nazareth, and he had a publicly verifiable death. So many saw him suffer and die. And so this isn't, unlike other religious stories about death and resurrection. Uh, this isn't a symbolic story, but it's a, it's a claim about a historical figure, that he was dead, 
and then rose again to life. Thirdly, many have said through the centuries that the apostles stole Jesus's body. Okay, he, once he died, he remained dead, and they removed his body and then perpetuated this story about his resurrection. This raises a number of questions. How did simple fishermen outpower these strong Roman guards who were guarding the tomb? Also, why steal Jesus's body to gain what? Recall that when Jesus suffered and then died, the apostles went into hiding. They were scared, okay, and they hid after Jesus's death. To suddenly come out boldly, steal Jesus's body, and then proclaim that he had risen from the dead, this would only lead to, as we'll talk about in a moment, the loss of their lives. So had he not truly resurrected, why would they suddenly turn from being scared and hiding to then making up this story only to lose their lives? Fourthly, some have said that the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Jesus missed him so much that they actually hallucinated the resurrection. Hallucinations are an individual thing, and there is not such a thing as a mass hallucination. So for many to claim that they all saw Jesus resurrect or all believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead uh, is not, not something that, that happens. Next, some have said that people like St. Paul, who claimed to have been knocked off his horse by this bright light and this apparition of the resurrected Jesus, was delusional and guilt-ridden. So recall that St. Paul had persecuted Christians for years, and he and others perhaps felt guilty about what they did, and so they conjured up in their minds this resurrection, and Jesus rose from the dead, they could then start following him and, and living among his fellow Christians. As we read the story of St. Paul, uh, we read that those who were with him, while they did not see the resurrected Christ like Paul did, they claimed to have seen this great light and to have heard a voice speaking to St. Paul. So the testimony of, of others around St. Paul and the testimony of those around others who have claimed to see the resurrected Christ, the empty tomb, uh, affirm their testimonies. Some have said through the years that saying that Christ resurrected from the dead is simply a symbolic way of saying that Jesus' spirit lives on. That instead of actually believing that Christ rose from the dead, Christians, the gospel writers, believers in the quote-unquote resurrection are simply saying that the spirit of Je Jesus lives on in the church and in the world. Had the gospel writers wanted to communicate that sentiment, they simply could have said that, that Jesus' spirit lives on rather than Jesus rose from the dead. And lastly, uh, especially now, maybe more than ever, uh, many claim that the resurrection is scientifically impossible. As we've discussed in previous episodes, there's lots of things that science can't explain. Okay, as I've, I've referenced Bishop Barron before talking about the, the error of scientism, believing that science or the scientific method is the only way of verifying truth. But this is one among many beautiful ways of verifying the truth. So there are many things we can't explain, like the creation of the universe. Okay, we have lots of theories, but we don't know exactly how it happened. And so, like these other phenomena that can't perfectly be explained by science, the resurrection of Christ from the dead falls in that category. Blaise Pascal said, What reason have they, 
referring to atheists, for saying that we cannot rise from the dead. What is more difficult, to be born or to rise again? That what has never been should be, or that what has been should be again? Is it more difficult to come into existence than to return to it? So these are a number of arguments often leveled against the resurrection through the years. And sometimes when we hear them kind of tossed off the cuff, it sounds like, oh, that, yeah, maybe that is a better explanation. Maybe that's reasonable. Maybe the resurrection is pretty unreasonable to, to uh, believe in. But when we pause and kind of drill down on each of these arguments against the resurrection, they don't add up. Um, and at the end, we're, we're faced with this, again, big, beautiful, bold claim. And we have to consider, like many dimensions of our faith, do I believe this? If I believe in Jesus Christ and all that he said and did and taught, this teaching, this belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, falls within that collection of teachings proclaimed by the church, entrusted with the divine revelation of, of God himself. And so we need to consider that. This is, again, a, a beautiful thing we could take to prayer. Lord, you claim to have risen from the dead, to have been dead and now to be alive again. Uh, do I believe that? And what is it that has led me to believe that? Paragraph 640 of the Catechism says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. The first element we encounter in the framework of the Easter events is the empty tomb. In itself, it is not a direct proof of resurrection. The absence of Christ's body from the tomb could be explained otherwise. Nonetheless, the empty tomb was still an essential sign for all. Its discovery by the disciples was the first step toward recognizing the very fact of the resurrection. So again, in itself, it is not a direct proof of resurrection. The absence of Christ's body from the tomb could have been explained otherwise. The Catechism goes on to say, nonetheless, the empty tomb was still an essential sign for all. In addition to the empty tomb, I think one of the most compelling supports for the belief in the resurrection is what followed among Jesus's closest followers. So Jesus Christ gathered around him the 12 apostles. And after this claim of the resurrection that Jesus died and then rose to new life, one by one, nearly all of the apostles, with the exception of Judas, who sadly took his own life, um, and with the exception of St. John, who died a natural death, the rest of the apostles suffered martyrdom for their belief in Jesus Christ and this belief that he rose from the dead. Not only did they suffer martyrdom, but they suffered some pretty horrific deaths. So we know that St. Peter was crucified like Christ. He believed that he was not worthy enough to be crucified exactly like Christ, and so he was crucified upside down. St. Andrew, also crucified, uh, tradition tells us, on an X instead of a, a typical cross. St. James the Greater uh, was stabbed with a sword. St. James the Lesser was stoned. St. Jude was clubbed and then crucified. And then St. Bartholomew, perhaps most horrifically of all, and is captured by Michelangelo in his famous painting of The Last Judgment, found in the, the Sistine Chapel ceiling, was flayed or skinned alive. And then he's pictured by Michelangelo uh, holding his, his skin 
as a testimony to this belief in Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. So these men, some of the closest followers of Jesus Christ, testified to the belief in the resurrection with their very lives in very extreme and bold and painful ways. They believed so much so that Jesus was dead and then rose to new life that they literally staked their lives on this claim. So what is it that convinces you of the resurrection? And how does it affect your faith? Had the resurrection not occurred, so had some of those arguments against the resurrection actually been true, for example, had the apostles stolen and then hidden Jesus's body, had the gospel writers simply repeated in a different way um, some of these mythological claims of other religions, and had Jesus not actually risen from the dead, how would that affect your faith? Um, if you didn't believe that the dead man rose, how would this change things for you? C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So Christianity, in its fundamental truths, cannot be watered down. Okay? It makes big, bold, beautiful claims. And it's up to us to prayerfully consider them and to come before the Lord and ask, what do these mean for each and every one of us? We'll take a brief break and then return to read our selection from the Catechism this week. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read our Catechism selection for the week, paragraphs 624 through 658. Paragraph 3, Jesus Christ was buried. By the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. In his plan of salvation, God ordained that his son should not only die for our sins, but should also taste death, experience the condition of death, the separation of his soul from his body, between the time he expired on the cross and the time he was raised from the dead. The state of the dead Christ is the mystery of the tomb and the descent into hell. It is the mystery of Holy Saturday when Christ, lying in the tomb, reveals God's great Sabbath rest after the fulfillment of man's salvation, which brings peace to the whole universe. Christ in the tomb in his body. Christ's stay in the tomb constitutes the real link between his passable state before Easter and his glorious and risen state today. The same person of the living one can say, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. God the Son did not impede death from separating his soul from his body according to the necessary order of nature, but has reunited them to one another in the resurrection, so that he himself might be, in his person, the meeting point for death and life, by arresting in himself the decomposition of nature produced by death, and so becoming the source of reunion for the separated parts." Since the author of life who was killed is the same living one who has risen, the divine person of the Son of God necessarily continued to possess his human soul and body, separated from each other by death. By the fact that at Christ's death his soul was separated from his flesh, his one person is not itself divided into two persons, for the human body and soul of Christ have existed in the same way from the beginning of his earthly existence, in the divine person of the Word 
and in death, although separated from each other, both remained with one and the same person of the word. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Christ's death was a real death in that it put an end to his earthly human existence. But because of the union which the person of the Son retained with his body, his was not a mortal corpse like others, for it was not possible for death to hold him. And therefore, divine powers preserved Christ's body from corruption. Both of these statements can be said of Christ. He was cut off out of the land of the living, and my flesh will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus' resurrection on the third day was the sign of this also, because bodily decay was held to begin on the fourth day after death. Buried with Christ. Baptism, the original and full sign of which is immersion, efficaciously signifies the descent into the tomb by the Christian who dies to sin with Christ in order to live a new life. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In brief, to the benefit of every man, Jesus Christ tasted death. It is truly the Son of God made man who died and was buried. During Christ's period in the tomb, his divine person continued to assume both his soul and his body, although they were separated from each other by death. For this reason, the dead Christ's body saw no corruption. Article 5. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is he who also ascended far above the heavens. The Apostles' Creed confesses in the same article Christ's descent into hell and his resurrection from the dead on the third day, because in his Passover it was precisely out of the depths of death that he made life spring forth. Christ, that morning star who came back from the dead and shed his peaceful light on all mankind, your Son who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Paragraph 1. Christ descended into hell. The frequent New Testament affirmations that Jesus was raised from the dead presuppose that the crucified one sojourned in the realm of the dead prior to his resurrection. This was the first meaning given in the apostolic preaching to Christ's descent into hell, that Jesus, like all men, experienced death and in his soul joined the others in the realm of the dead. But he descended there as Savior, proclaiming the good news to the spirits imprisoned there. Scripture calls the abode of the dead, to which the dead Christ went down, hell, Sheol in Hebrew, or Hades in Greek, because those who are there are deprived of the vision of God. Such is the case for all the dead, whether evil or righteous, while they await the Redeemer, which does not mean that their lot is identical, as Jesus shows through the parable of the poor man Lazarus, who was received into Abraham's bosom. It is precisely these holy souls who awaited their Savior in Abraham's bosom, whom Christ the Lord delivered when he descended into hell. Jesus did not descend into hell to deliver the damned, nor to destroy the hell of damnation, but to free the just who had gone before him. The gospel was preached even to the dead. The descent into hell brings the gospel message of salvation to complete fulfillment. This is the last phase of Jesus's messianic mission, a phase which is condensed in time, but vast in its real significance. The spread of Christ's redemptive work to all men of all times and all places, for all who are saved have been made sharers in the redemption. Christ went down into the depths of death, so that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Jesus, the author of life, 
by dying, destroyed him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Henceforth, the risen Christ holds the keys of death and Hades, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Today a great silence reigns on earth, a great silence and a great stillness, a great silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh, and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. He has gone to search for Adam, our first father, as for a lost sheep. Greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, he has gone to free from sorrow Adam and his bonds and Eve captive with him, he who is both their God and the son of Eve. I am your God, who for your sake have become your son. I order you, O sleeper, to awake. I did not create you to be a prisoner in hell. Rise from the dead, for I am the life of the dead. In brief, by the expression, he descended into hell, the Apostles' Creed confesses that Jesus did really die, and through his death for us conquered death and the devil who has the power of death. In his human soul, united to his divine person, the dead Christ went down to the realm of the dead. He opened heaven's gates for the just who had gone before him. Paragraph 2. On the third day he rose from the dead. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this day he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the crowning truth of our faith in Christ, a faith believed and lived as the central truth by the first Christian community, handed on as fundamental by tradition, established by the documents of the New Testament, and preached as an essential part of the Paschal mystery along with the cross. Christ is risen from the dead. Dying, he conquered death. To the dead, he has given life. The historical and transcendent event. The mystery of Christ's resurrection is a real event with manifestations that were historically verified, as the New Testament bears witness. In about A.D. 56, St. Paul could already write to the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. The apostle here speaks of the living tradition of the resurrection, which he had learned after his conversion at the gates of Damascus. The Empty Tomb Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. The first element we encounter in the framework of the Easter events is the empty tomb, In itself, it is not a direct proof of resurrection. The absence of Christ's body from the tomb could be explained otherwise. Nonetheless, the empty tomb was still an essential sign for all. Its discovery by the disciples was the first step toward recognizing the very fact of the resurrection. This was the case first with the holy women and then with Peter. The disciple whom Jesus loved affirmed that when he entered the empty tomb, and discovered the linen cloths lying there, he saw and believed. This suggests that he realized from the empty tomb's condition that the absence of Jesus' body could not have been of human doing, and that Jesus had not simply returned to earthly life as had been the case with Lazarus. The Appearance of the Risen One Mary Magdalene and the holy women who came to finish anointing the body of Jesus, which had been buried in haste because the Sabbath began on the evening of Good Friday, were the first to encounter the risen one. Thus the women were the first messengers of Christ's resurrection for the apostles themselves. They were the next to whom Jesus appears, first Peter, then the twelve. 
Peter had been called to strengthen the faith of his brothers, and so sees the risen one before them. It is on the basis of his testimony that the community exclaims, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Everything that happened during those Paschal days involves each of the apostles, and Peter in particular, in the building of the new era begun on Easter morning. As witnesses of the risen one, they remain the foundation stones of his church. The faith of the first community of believers is based on the witness of concrete men known to the Christians and for the most part still living among them. Peter and the Twelve are the primary witnesses to his resurrection, but they are not the only ones. Paul speaks clearly of more than 500 persons to whom Jesus appeared on a single occasion, and also of James and of all the apostles. Given all these testimonies, Christ's resurrection cannot be interpreted as something outside the physical order, and it is impossible not to acknowledge it as an historical fact. It is clear from the facts that the disciples' faith was drastically put to the test by their master's passion and death on the cross, which he had foretold. The shock provoked by the passion was so great that at least some of the disciples did not at once believe in the news of the resurrection. Far from showing us a community seized by a mystical exaltation, the Gospels present us with disciples demoralized, quote-unquote looking sad and frightened, for they had not believed the holy women returning from the tomb and had regarded their words as an idle tale. When Jesus reveals himself to the eleven on Easter evening, he upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Even when faced with the reality of the risen Jesus, the disciples are still doubtful. So impossible did the thing seem. They thought they were seeing a ghost. In their joy, they were still disbelieving and still wondering. Thomas will also experience the test of doubt, and St. Matthew relates that during the risen Lord's last appearance in Galilee, some doubted. Therefore, the hypothesis that the resurrection was produced by the apostles' faith or credulity will not hold up. On the contrary, their faith in the resurrection was born, under the action of divine grace, from their direct experience of the reality of the risen Jesus. The Condition of Christ's Risen Humanity by means of touch and the sharing of a meal, the risen Jesus establishes direct contact with his disciples. He invites them in this way to recognize that he is not a ghost, and above all to verify that the risen body in which he appears to them is the same body that had been tortured and crucified, for it still bears the traces of his passion. Yet at the same time, this authentic, real body possesses the new properties of a glorious body, not limited by space and time, but able to be present how and when he wills. For Christ's humanity can no longer be confined to earth and belongs henceforth only to the Father's divine realm. For this reason, too, the risen Jesus enjoys the sovereign freedom of appearing as he wishes, in the guise of a gardener or in other forms familiar to his disciples, precisely to awaken their faith. Christ's resurrection was not a return to earthly life, as was the case with the raisings from the dead that he had performed before Easter. Jairus' daughter, the young man of name, Lazarus. These actions were miraculous events, but the persons miraculously raised returned by Jesus' power to ordinary earthly life. At some particular moment, they would die again. Christ's resurrection is essentially different. In his risen body, he passes from the state of death to another life beyond time and space. At Jesus' resurrection, his body is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He shares the divine life in his glorious state, so that St. Paul can say that Christ is the man of heaven. The resurrection is transcendent event. O truly blessed night, 
sings the exultant of the Easter Vigil, which alone deserved to know the time and the hour when Christ rose from the realm of the dead. But no one was an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection, and no evangelist describes it. No one can say how it came about physically. Still less was its innermost essence, his passing over to another life, perceptible to the senses. Although the resurrection was an historical event that could be verified by the sign of the empty tomb and by the reality of the apostles' encounters with the risen Christ, still it remains at the very heart of the mystery of faith as something that transcends and surpasses history. This is why the risen Christ does not reveal himself to the world, but to his disciples, to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. The Resurrection, a work of the Holy Trinity. Christ's resurrection is an object of faith in that it is a transcendent intervention of God himself in creation and history. In it, the three divine persons act together as one and manifest their own proper characteristics. The Father's power raised up Christ his Son, and by doing so perfectly, introduced his Son's humanity, including his body, into the Trinity. Jesus is conclusively revealed as Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. St. Paul insists on the manifestation of God's power through the working of the Spirit who gave life to Jesus' dead humanity and called it to the glorious state of lordship. As for the Son, he effects his own resurrection by virtue of his divine power. Jesus announces that the Son of Man will have to suffer much, die, and then rise. Elsewhere, he affirms explicitly, I lay down my life that I might take it again. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. The fathers contemplate the resurrection from the perspective of the divine person of Christ, who remained united to his soul and body even when these were separated from each other by death. By the unity of the divine nature, which remains present in each of the two components of man, these are reunited. For as death is produced by the separation of the human components, so resurrection is achieved by the union of the two. The meaning and saving significance of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection, above all, constitutes the confirmation of all Christ's works and teachings. All truths, even those most inaccessible to human reason, find their justification if Christ, by his resurrection, has given the definitive proof of his divine authority, which he had promised. Christ's resurrection is the fulfillment of the promises both of the Old Testament and of Jesus himself during his earthly life. The phrase, in accordance with the scriptures, indicates that Christ's resurrection fulfilled these predictions. The truth of Jesus' divinity is confirmed by his resurrection. He had said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. The resurrection of the crucified one shows that he was truly I am, the Son of God, and God himself. So St. Paul could declare to the Jews what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Christ's resurrection is closely linked to the incarnation of God's Son and is its fulfillment in accordance with God's eternal plan. The Paschal mystery has two aspects. By his death, Christ liberates us from sin. By his resurrection, he opens for us the way to a new life. This new life is above all justification that reinstates us in God's grace, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Justification consists in both victory over the death caused by sin 
and a new participation in grace. It brings about filial adoption so that men become Christ's brethren, as Jesus himself called his disciples after his resurrection. Go and tell my brethren. We are brethren not by nature, but by the gift of grace, because that adoptive filiation gains us a real share in the life of the only Son, which was fully revealed in his resurrection. Finally, Christ's resurrection and the risen Christ himself is the principle and source of our future resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The risen Christ lives in the hearts of his faithful while they await that fulfillment. In Christ, Christians have tasted the powers of the age to come, and their lives are swept up by Christ into the heart of divine life so that they may live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In brief, faith in the resurrection has as its object an event which is historically attested to by the disciples, who really encountered the risen one. At the same time, this event is mysteriously transcendent insofar as it is the entry of Christ's humanity into the glory of God. The empty tomb and the linen cloths lying there signify in themselves that by God's power, Christ's body had escaped the bonds of death and corruption. They prepared the disciples to encounter the risen Lord. Christ, the firstborn from the dead, is the principle of our own resurrection, even now by the justification of our souls. And one day, by the new life, he will impart to our bodies. This brings us to the end of our reading selection for today. Thanks for joining me for another week of Catholic Light. Uh, between now and our next episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. And let's consider this week, what is it that convinces each of us of the resurrection? And how does it affect each of our faiths? Had the resurrection not occurred, so had the dead man not truly risen, how would that change things? I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.